check, check. All right, well, welcome to uh, welcome to Steel Creek. Welcome to Dirt Bike Church here at Steel Creek. My name is Chuck Lee Master with Team Faith. Pleasure to be with you, of course. And, uh, hey, let's just go ahead and get started. Lord, thanks a lot for today. It's a, been a beautiful, beautiful day out here, and we are just reminded that you are good. And um, we look around, we see your creation, we see that there's order in your creation. We trust you, and we just invite you into our lives tonight. Just uh, draw us close to yourself. Give me the words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever been disappointed with God? That's the question tonight. Have you ever been let down? I know that I have been there. I know I've been there at one point in my life where I look around and I see beautiful creation like this. And I say, I know that there's a God, but it seems like it seems like He likes everybody else but me. It seems like He's concerned with everybody. He'll answer other people's prayers, but it seems like mine get nowhere. Uh, they bounce off the, off the ceiling, and I don't know if God really understands. I don't know if He cares. I don't know what, you know, I just don't, I just don't get it. And if you've ever had those doubts, let me reassure you that you're not alone. Every single one of us has had it. You think about the most spiritual person that you know, and if that happens to be me, you need to get out more. (laughs) But think of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, we probably hold him up on a pedestal that he doesn't deserve because he was a sinner just like the rest of us. Even he had those moments of doubt. Man, I wonder if God's really paying attention. I wonder if God really, really does know about me. I wonder if he knows what he's doing. And so we're going to dig into that question a little bit tonight. But, um, you know, we're start, we're going through this series this year. It's big, big undertaking for me because we, it's a 13-round series that we're on. And we got 13 messages that we're going to go through called Through the Ages and the Pages, Through the Bible in 13 Rounds. Starting in Genesis, working our way into Revelation. This is round number three, and we're still in Genesis. Even tonight, it's like, man, you better pick up the pace. I know. But there is so much going on in the story of God. 40 different authors, 66 different books, 1,500 years in the making to get the story of God through the ages and through the pages. So where we started, two rounds ago, we started in Genesis. Genesis, God created the world, and it was good. But then... Adam and Eve, the first man and woman on the planet, they had everything that they ever needed. They had every option that they could imagine was good. Hey, look at that. We're getting the sun blocked for us. It'll only be a minute, and I think that sun will go down over the hill. You'll all be able to see me again. Adam and Eve, every option that they had was good except for one option. There was one rule, one thing. Don't eat of that tree, knowledge of good and evil. Of course, what did they do? They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, the order of creation was actually inverted. Now we are born into sin. Every option that we have is bad because it's apart from God. It separates us from that relationship with God. We only have one option that's actually good. And that is Jesus Christ. But in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve had eaten of that, uh, that tree, and God's coming down in the, in the cool of the day looking for him and finds out, oh, you ate of the, the tree I said not to. And God curses Satan. And he says, Satan, he's cursing the serpent, which, is, which we know is Satan. He says, your offspring and her offspring are going to be at odds. You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Or as the New International Version translation puts it, you will cru- he will crush your head. Which we can fast forward the story 4,000 years and we see Jesus did absolutely that. We have always been at odds with Satan. He bruised Jesus' heel on the cross, but in three days' time, 
Jesus rose from the grave and absolutely crushed death. But in the story, as you get to read the story and you put it in context through the ages and the pages of the story of God, you just see how God's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 starts to unfold. And so after that, there comes the flood where God washes the earth, washes it of all of its sin, very reminiscent to what we do in baptism these days. We, we bury. You're buried in your sins and trespasses, risen to new life in Jesus Christ. Peter said in one of his letters, he said, that's the picture of what the flood did. Washed everything, new life came up. Well, that new life came up, but mankind still did not have a relationship with God. And so God comes down to a guy named Abram. He says, hey, Abram. So I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to do it through you. I'm going, to, I'm going to accomplish my purpose using you. You are going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to have lots of people, lots of land, great blessing. The entire world is going to be blessed through you. And so we looked at the story of Abraham. We found out, though, that Abraham was declared righteous because he believed God. Not, not because Abraham was a good guy. Matter of fact, if you were with us in Georgia, you find out that Abraham, right off the bat, God gives him this promise of I'm going to make you into a great nation with lots of land and a great blessing, right off the bat, Abraham goes and messes up royally, terribly. And God says, no, no, my promise still stands. We're going to get you back on track. Abraham messes up again. But Abraham was counted righteous because he believed in God. We are counted righteous because we believe in God, not because of anything that we've done, because we aren't worthy. We haven't done anything good. Even the, even the goodest guy in the Bible, which we'll get into later, and I know goodest isn't a word, but it drives home the point. The best guy that you can think of in the Bible is David, a man after God's own heart. David said, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Not one single person has done anything good, and yet we can be counted righteous because we believe God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the story that we're, that's the storyline that we're driving to. But so far, all we've got is Abraham. God says, I'm going to do a great thing. We're going to crush death. We're going to crush Satan. I'm going to use Abraham to do it. I'm going to raise up in him a great nation, lots of people, lots of land, great blessing. That's where we left off two weeks ago. We've just got this one guy and a promise. And he has a son named Isaac. We're going to fast forward that story about 150 years tonight. Isaac goes and has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the oldest one, but God says, I'm going to use Jacob to accomplish my purposes. Jacob has 12 sons. Matter of fact, when we come into the story, we're looking at the story of the 11th son of Jacob. Joseph. A guy named Joseph. If you've been in church culture, you've heard the story of Joseph a thousand times. But listen to how it plays in to that story of God. We come into the story of Genesis chapter 37. Joseph is 17 years old. He's pastoring sheep with his brothers. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. He's a tattletale. That's our first sign about Joseph. He goes and he tattles on his older brothers. He brings them a bad, a bad report to his father. Now Israel, the next verse says, Now Israel, which is the name of Jacob, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And at the time that he changed his name, it's used interchangeably. It's called Jacob. It's called Israel. Same person here. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now remember, there, at this time there's no Dr. Phil. There's nobody to say, hey, Jacob, that's a really bad idea. You can't have favorites. Now, I'm the exception to that rule. I have a favorite kid. I tell him all the time, Trevor, you're my favorite kid. And every time he says, I'm your only kid. Figure that works the other way, too. You know, if he annoys me, Trevor, you're no longer my favorite kid. I actually said that to him today. Alicia McCormick was coming by. She's like, I heard that. <laughs> He's my only kid. 
But Jacob had 12 sons, and he had a favorite, Joseph, because Joseph was actually, it was a total dysfunctional family. Jacob had multiple wives. His favorite wife bore him the son, Joseph. So he loves on this, this kid, Joseph. Makes him a coat of many colors, which gives Dolly Parton some fodder for a song. 1971, did you know that the coat of many colors that she wrote, 1971 was her number two top five hit ever? It helped put Dolly Parton on the map. Anyway, just... Just trivia for all you true country music fans out there, all right? Not this modern stuff, but the real country music. Now you know. Okay. Back to the story here. Coat of many colors. Joseph, after tattling on his brothers, he actually gets to stay home. Jacob sends the ten older brothers out to Shechem. He says, hey, these sheep need some pasture land. Take them out to Shechem. Later on, he's like, hey, Joseph, your brothers, why don't you go give me a report on them? Go spy on them a little bit. Come back and tell me what they're actually up to. So Joseph takes off to Shechem. He doesn't find them there, but he, he puts out the word, Hey, you guys see a big, you know, ten guys, ten, ten ugly dudes. They're my brothers, but they're out there pasturing some sheep. Where'd they go? He finds them. As he comes up over the hill, we're told through the narrative here, that as he's coming up over the hill, his coat of many colors, his brothers see him. They're like, Oh, man, here comes that tattletale. Here comes that dreamer, actually, is what they call him. Because Joseph had had a couple of dreams. And in his dreams, he wakes up the next morning. He's like, hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream last night. And in my dream, y'all were bowing down to me. They didn't like that very much. He had another dream, same thing. Y'all were bowing down to me. Like, there is no way we are bowing down to you. So he comes up over the hill. Like, hey, guys, 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 here comes that dreamer. I hate that kid. Let's kill him. Somebody, one of his brothers, actually had the idea, let's kill him. The other brothers said, that's a great idea. How much hatred and dysfunction was in this family? Reuben, the oldest brother, he's like, you know what, let's not kill him. Says that Reuben actually had this plan to throw him in a pit and come back and rescue him later. He said, let's throw him in a pit. That's what they do. They capture Joseph. They throw him in a pit. Reuben goes off to lunch, steak and shake, or wherever he goes. While he's gone, the other 11 brothers, they see a, 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 some dust creeping up over the rise. And they're like, hey, there are some traitors. They're on their way to Egypt. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. We ought to make some money off of this deal. Now, if you were with us last week, two weeks ago in Georgia, you remember that Abraham, one of his massive mistakes was he had a son with a woman that he wasn't married to. And uh, and he ended up calling this kid Ishmael. Because uh, when God came to Hagar, which was the mother, Hagar was actually at odds with Sarah, Jacob's wa- or Abraham's wife, and there's all this friction, and God comes down and he says, Hey, Hagar, don't worry. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him Ishmael. And she's like, Oh, yay! She's so excited. And then God says, but he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand is going to be against everybody, everybody's hand against him. Next time we read about Ishmael or Ishmael's descendants is 150 years later, they say there's a band of Ishmaelites coming over the hill. Let's sell our brother to them. And they can take him to Egypt and do whatever they want with him. So they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Reuben comes back, hey, where's Joseph? We sold him. Here's your share. Didn't really go the way that Reuben was thinking. But the brothers really didn't care. So as, as Joseph, the, is, the narrative in chapter 39 actually shifts to Joseph. It says that as he arrives in Egypt, the Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar is actually the, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites. 
says at this point in the story that Joseph was so good at doing the task that Potiphar put him to, up to do that Potiphar promoted him that he was over he was chief over all the servants in Potiphar's house. Remember, this is a powerful man. Captain of the guard reports directly to Pharaoh, a rich man. And Joseph impressed him so much that Joseph himself gets promoted. Now, this, this takes me directly to what King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Paul, many, many, many years later, the early church leader Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a theme all through the pages. And it starts with Joseph, who even though, even though he was in a situation where he thought that God had forgotten him, had overlooked him, God answers prayers for everybody else, Maybe not for me. Joseph still put his best foot forward. Bad, terrible situation. And he still put his best foot forward. As the story goes, he's in charge of the entire house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's wife comes to him when Pharaoh's gone to work. I'm sure that Potiphar was gone quite a bit. And Pharaoh's wife, or Potiphar's wife, comes to him. And she says, lie with me. That's exactly what the text says. She's like, you need to go to bed with me. And Joseph says, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, every time I've heard the story preached, every, I'm always told that Joseph had incredible self-control, that he was really dependent on God in that moment. But what if it was the other way around? What if she was a dog? <laughs> you just kind of want it helps the self-control every once in a while. Like, whoa, no, not going to do that. You don't know. But here's the deal. It's not in the text. We don't want to read too much into it. But we do know at the end of the day, Joseph didn't give in to her. She's like, lie with me. He's like, uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to disgrace God that way. I'm not going to dishonor Potiphar that way. He comes in one day. There are no other servants in the house. She grabs hold of him, and he flees. He just drops his coat. He just runs right out of his coat, takes off out of the house. Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned, or so we've been told. And it's certainly true in this situation because she starts screaming, and she starts accusing Joseph of doing foul things to her. All the servants come in and are like, oh, we can't believe this. They arrest Joseph and they throw him into prison. Potiphar comes home. He's like, well, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. Throws him into prison. And there Joseph is. Hadn't done anything wrong. Matter of fact, he did what was right and he got punished for it. Can you think of any time in your life when you did the right thing and you got punished for it? I certainly can. Every single one of us has probably had an example of doing the right thing getting punished for it. It seems like the wicked prosper. Certainly those thoughts went through Joseph's mind, but he's there in prison. And what does he do? He puts his best foot forward. He does the next right thing. As a matter of fact, he impresses the prison guards so much that they make him the chief trustee. And now all of a sudden, he's in charge of all the other prisoners. If the prisoner has a problem, they come to Joseph. And then Joseph goes to the the prison guards. And he's the one that negotiates on their behalf. He's the one that's in charge of all the prisoners. One day, after Joseph has been in there for some time, we're not sure how long, he's been in there for a while, there are two new inmates in prison. These two new inmates were the, the cupbearer for Pharaoh, which means that that guy is the guy that had to drink drink a, a sip of the, uh, the juice or the wine or whatever it was that was going to be served to Pharaoh. This guy had to drink it or eat it to make sure that he didn't die, because if he didn't die, it's safe for Pharaoh to drink. So important guy, but somehow he offended Pharaoh. He got thrown into prison. The chief baker also got thrown into prison. So these two guys are in prison. One day, 
Joseph looks at him and he's like, hey, you guys look really, really troubled. You don't seem your happy selves in this wonderful little prison that we have here. I mean, I know it's gloomy, but you guys seem really down today. He's like, well, you know what? We had dreams. And Joseph's like, oh, hey, dreams are kind of my thing. Matter of fact, I know the God who gives dreams. So why don't you tell me your dream? I'll tell you what it means. They're like, great. So the cupbearer goes first. He says, man, I had this dream. He tells Joseph about it. And Joseph says, oh, man, hey, I got good news and I got better news. He says, the good news is you're getting out of here. The better news is you're going to get reinstated to your job. When that happens, don't forget about little old Joseph down here in prison, okay? The cupbearer says, man, I swear if it happens, that would be great. The baker says, hey, I also had a dream. If you could interpret his dream, maybe you can tell me what mine is. He tells Joseph what his dream is. And Joseph says, I got good news I got bad news. Good news is you're getting out of here. Bad news is you're not getting out of here with your head intact. Matter of fact, he literally says, your Pharaoh is going to lift up your head from you. Three days' time, the cupbearer gets reinstated to his position with Pharaoh. The baker gets executed and gets hung up, gets strung up on a tree for all the birds there to come and eat his carcass. The cupbearer, who had all that wonderful good news, goes back to his job with Pharaoh and totally forgets all about Joseph. Forgets all about that promise that he had made to Joseph. Until, a couple years later, Pharaoh himself has a dream. He actually has two dreams. And uh, the cupbearer, as Pharaoh was going through his day and he's asking all of his magicians, he's asking all of his psychiatrists, he's asking all of his doctors, he's asking everybody he knows, can you interpret dreams? The cupbearer says, hey, you know what, Pharaoh? That time that you were mad at me, yeah, funny story, I know, but that time that you were mad at me and you threw me in prison, I wasn't laughing so much, by the way, but there was this guy and he could tell dreams. And so Pharaoh says, well, clean him up and bring him out here. So they clean Joseph up, they give him a shave, give him a fresh set of clothes, they bring him to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I understand that you can tell dreams. And Joseph says, yes, sir, I can. What was it that you dreamed? And Pharaoh says, well, it was really, really strange. I dreamed that there were seven cows that came out of the Nile River, and they were fat, and they were healthy. They were strong, and they were grazing, and they looked good. And then seven skinny, scrawny, disgusting cows came up out of the Nile, and they ate the fat cows, and they didn't gain any weight. He says, then I, had a, I, went, I woke up and I went back to sleep and I had a dream about ears of corn. There were seven ears of corn that grew nice, fat, and healthy. And then there were seven skinny ears that grew up and ate the seven fat ears, which I've never seen in my life. Corn eating corn. What could this possibly mean? And Joseph says, you know what? The two dreams are actually the same. God is telling you something. And he's telling it to you twice because he wants you to pay attention. What this means, the seven cows, the seven fat ears, means seven years. You're going to have seven years of a bountiful harvest, an amazing growth crop. Then you're going to have seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh, far be it for me to tell you what to do, but I would just, I would just advise. If you take my advice, I would advise that you set some of that aside in the seven years of plenty. Say 20%. Take a 20% tax, set that aside to help you get through the seven years of famine. Pharaoh, to his credit, said, you know what? (laughs) It's your idea. You own it. Good leaders tend to do that. It's your idea. You own it. I'm promoting you. You're not in prison anymore. Matter of fact, you're under my command and my command only. You are chief over all of Egypt. Make it happen. You build the grain silos. You collect that tax. 
you make sure that we're ready for that seven years of famine. And so Joseph goes and does so. Matter of fact, it says that not only did he just collect the 20% tax, but there was such a bountiful harvest in those years that he was able to, uh, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sea of the sand until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. What's amazing about this story of Joseph is that all through those years, when people like you and me, we get in a bad situation, we say, you know what, I think that God's forgotten me, he's overlooked me, and, and I don't know where God is at in this moment. Joseph, we don't have any evidence that he did that. Matter of fact, What's amazing is that Joseph didn't even have this during that time. He didn't have 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years to show the story of God. All he had were stories from his great-great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob, who each one of them, in their lifetimes, God had visited them and said, I have a plan. I'm going to make of you a great nation, lots of people, lots of land, and a great blessing on the earth. And Joseph lived into that. And he lived it. He didn't actually have to say it. He actually lived it. So the story goes on that, of course, the famine gets so severe that in Canaan, the land of Canaan, north north of Egypt here, back where God said, this is the promised land. Abraham, I want you to sojourn up here. I want you to travel around here because I'm going to give you this land. Don't go to Egypt. He says to Jacob, or he says to Isaac, travel in this land. Don't go to Egypt. In this land up here, there's a famine. And that's where Jacob's at. Egypt is down here. Jacob tells the ten older brothers, he says, you know what, we're starving. I hear a rumor that there's grain in Egypt. Why don't you go down to Egypt, see if you can buy some grain. Of course, when they go to Egypt, who do you think that they had to look up? They had to look up Joseph. But his name wasn't Joseph. Pharaoh gave him a new name. Zerpaneth Paneah. So the, the, the boys come to the border. They say, hey, we hear that you guys have grain for sale. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got to go see that Zerpaneth Panea guy. He'll sell you some grain. Okay. They go and they appear before the Zerpaneth Panea guy, who happens to be Joseph. But it's been 22 years since the brothers have seen Joseph. Besides that, he walks like an Egyptian now. They totally don't recognize him at all. And they're looking at him, but he recognizes them. He says, ah, my brothers. Now, I know a lot of people that have been wronged. I'm in my 40s now. I hate to admit that. I really do. But God's been good to me. Great health. Lot, long ways to go. In my 40s. I know a lot of people that have been wounded, severely wounded, by things that people have done to them in their 20s and in their teens. And I know some people that hold on to that, and it has absolutely destroyed their lives at this point. The same age as me won't come out of their houses sad, angry, all the time. You don't see that kind of attitude in Joseph here. Matter of fact, you're going to see why in a little bit, but it has a lot to do with forgiveness. Matter of fact, forgiveness is kind of a theme that weaves its way through the ages and pages here. God, who loved us so much that He forgives us of our sin, loved us so much that He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, and it's that forgiveness that heals us, even one-on-one in our relationships. Joseph... He sees his brothers. He doesn't run up and say, I forgive you. No, he actually puts them a little bit to the test here. I know that he had really been wounded, but when he sees his brothers, he gives them a hard time. He sees ten of them. He gives them a hard time. He says, "Uh, you guys are here to buy grain? I don't think so. You all are spies, aren't you? Like, no, 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 sir. We are not spies. Matter of fact, we come from a big family up in Canaan, and we just need to buy food. Oh, really? How big's your family? 
Well, there was 12 of us brothers. One of them's dead, and the other one, the youngest, can't leave my father's side because it would absolutely crush our father. And Joseph's like, yeah, likely story. You have a younger brother. Yeah, right. I'll tell you what. Prove to me that you're not spies. Y'all go back to Canaan, get your younger brother, and bring him back here. Matter of fact, I'm going to hang on to that one right there. Simeon, you get to go in jail here in Egypt. I don't know exactly what Simeon had done. Maybe he was the first one to say, let's kill. I don't know. Again, don't want to read too much into the text here. But Joseph picks him out, put him in jail here. The brothers, they go home. They go home with grain. Matter of fact, Joseph sneaks them a refund in their grain sacks. They stop on the way home to feed their donkeys. They open up and they're like, oh no, all of our money's right here. That dude that thinks that we're a spy, he's going to think we stole from him. Oh no. They get back home to, to Jacob and Jacob says, hey, I see nine of y'all here. Where's Simeon? Well, dad, funny thing is, He's in jail in Egypt. That dude thinks that the dude that's in charge, Zerapadeth, Phinea, he thinks that we're spies. And so we kind of told him our story. And Jacob's like, you idiots, why did you tell him all about us? Well, Dad, it's like he knew. He just kind of drug it out of us. And he says in order to get Simeon back, we got to deliver Benjamin to him. Uh-uh, you ain't taking Benjamin from me. So they, they go on, they start living their lives, forgetting all about poor old Simeon there in Egypt. But they run out of food. And the famine is severe, and it keeps on raging. And finally, Jacob says, hey, guys, y'all need to go back to, to uh, Egypt and buy some more grain. Judah, Judah speaks up. He's like, Dad, don't you see that you're missing somebody here? Simeon's in jail in Egypt unless we take Benjamin. If we don't take Benjamin to Egypt, we ain't going to Egypt. And Jacob finally relented. And he said, all right, if you, you guys can take J- Benjamin with you, but if you lose him, you kill me. They're like, all right, Dad, trust us. We're going to go. They go. They bring Benjamin. They bring him to to, uh, to Joseph. They still don't recognize Joseph. Joseph actually sits him down to have dinner with him. He says, oh, okay, so maybe y'all aren't spies after all. Well, let's have a lunch to celebrate. He gets them all into his house, and he sits them down in order of their birth. You're like, wow, this guy's amazing. I hear that he can tell dreams. I hear he's a really important guy. They bow down to him. Just like that dream in the very beginning. They have a very awkward lunch because Joseph sits at his table, the brothers sit at their table. Afterwards, Joseph says, all right, you guys can go home. He, he, gives them, uh, he, he sends them on their way with full grain sacks and he sneaks his golden cup into Benjamin's sack. They get going down the road. Joseph sends out his guards after him. He says, hey, I put my, my golden cup in Benjamin's sack. But it's a total setup. I want to see how they respond to this. Go and arrest them. So they run them down. They say, hey, how dare you guys steal the golden cup of my master? Like, no, we didn't steal nothing. Well, we're going to search your sack, starting with the oldest all the way down to the youngest. Open Benjamin's sack. They see the golden cup there. They say, oh, you're dead. Judah speaks up. Judah, one of the older brothers, he says, take me instead. They all, all 11 of them, come back to Egypt. They come in front of Joseph. And they implore him, please, please, please let Judah take Benjamin's place. It was the test that Joseph had totally set up to see where his brother's hearts were. As they passed the test, Joseph broke down and he wept. He sent out all the Egyptians, and it's just him and his brothers. And he he revealed himself to his brothers. He says, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into slavery. And they just look at each other like, you got to be kidding me. Totally did not see that one coming. You're alive? 
We knew for sure you were dead, and here you, you're like the most important dude in all of Egypt. We bow down to you. Hallelujah. <laughs> Pretty excited about it. Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers are in town. He says, hey, Joseph, your family's here? Yeah, everybody but my brothers, my in-laws, my nieces, my nephews. Well, go get them. Bring them here to Egypt, man. We got lots of food. You did so awesome storing up food for us. Bring your whole family here. Take the wagons. Take the horses. Go get them. So what do you know? Jacob gets to move to Egypt. Now, here's the amazing thing. Is that, uh, is that while, while Abraham was sojourning up in here, he's scouting out the land, there's a famine, and he runs to Egypt. A huge mistake. God says, no, 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 you're up here. Isaac, his son, there's a famine. He starts to go to Egypt. God reveals to him, no, 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 no. Matter of fact, I want you up here because lots of people, lots of land, great blessing, reestablishes the covenant with, with, uh, with Isaac. With Jacob, Jacob starts out, from the land of Canaan, he starts to come down to Egypt. He stops at Beersheba and he prays to God. He builds up an altar there. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob said, Here I am. Then said, Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I will be with you. You see, it's interesting. Abraham and Isaac. When they decided to go to Egypt, it wasn't God's timing and it wasn't God's plan. What is so different now that Jacob, this is my plan to move you into Egypt? The difference is, we read in the text here that Jacob's family was 70 people. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 sons married their neighbors there, the Canaanite people there, which was fine in that moment there. And they started their own 12 little families. Had that continued, those 12 little families would have just kept on growing and spreading throughout Canaan until there was no family of Israel anymore. What happened was God said, Hey, Jacob, I want you to take your 70 people and I want to move you out from among all these Canaanites. I want you to come down here to Egypt. And here's where the story picks up to make this tie in all together. As they're coming into Egypt, Joseph pulls his brothers aside. He says, hey, when you get in front of Pharaoh, just tell him, he's going to ask you what you do for a living. Just tell him the truth, that you're shepherds. Matter of fact, all the Egyptians absolutely they hate, they despise shepherds. And so what Pharaoh's going to do is he is going to put you in the land of Goshen to tend your sheep. And he might even make you shepherds of his sheep. You want the land of Goshen. I've been living here for over 20 years. You want the land of Goshen. They don't like it when, they're, when, when kids come to school with sheep poop on their boots. And they pick on them and they make fun of them. But that's what we do. You want the land of Goshen. Because you guys are farmers. You're good at it. You want that, man. We, I grew up in the country. I know what farmer kids coming in to school is like. They always get picked on. No different thousands of years ago in Egypt. So they come before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, what do you all do for a living? They said, well, we're sheep tenders. He's like, great. Tell you what, why don't you take the land of Goshen? It's got rich pasture land. You can take all your livestock there. And while you're at it, you take care of my livestock too. Great. If you look at a map today, if you look at a satellite photograph of Egypt, you see that Egypt is, uh, in this day and age, it's a desert land. Thousands of years ago, I think it was a desert land, actually. But satellite view shows that the Nile River runs through the continent of Egypt. It is a north-flowing river. As it comes into, in, out, of, out of the continent of Africa, it comes into Egypt, it gets to Cairo, and the Nile River splits off into a V. 
and there's distributaries right through there. Lots of, lots of little rivers and lots of creeks that are flowing through there. That V right there, that is the land of Goshen. It is rich, it is fertile, and the Egyptians wanted nothing to do with it. But the family of Israel, 70 people strong, in danger of being scattered among the nation of Canaan, God says, through a famine, He says, move down to Egypt, settle in the land of Goshen, where nobody's going to bother you, where you can grow and multiply, and your family can multiply and have multiplication upon multiplication until you are as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And we will pick that story up next week because that is exactly what happened. That when God, when we think that God has totally overlooked me and He has forgotten me, God has proved through the ages and through the pages, 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years in the making, He's proved that He knows exactly what He is doing. And sometimes He'll use a famine to accomplish His purpose. God, thank You so much for allowing us to be here. Thank You for recording history for us so that we can look and with new eyes and say, wow, you really did know what you were doing. You knew what you were doing then. You know what you're doing now. I trust you with my life. Lord, I pray if no one has trusted you with their life, if there's someone here that has not trusted you with their life, that you will just move on them to let them know how much you love them and allow them to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Go with us as we leave this place. Bless us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thank you so much. I have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, you know somebody that needs one, wants one, just come on up and grab one. Don't even have to ask for it, okay? Thanks a lot. Need something else? Let me know. Chuckles. Stop picking. Oh, we picked.